there, Cramaholics. Welcome back. It is your host, Kinsey. I'm here with another Missing Mondays episode. Missing Mondays was a segment that was created because at any given time, 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. While some are found alive or deceased, the majority of them are still missing today. It is my goal here at Cramaholics to keep missing persons' name and information in the media to aid in their return home the best that I can. I am sure that most of you know that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This is a topic that hits very close to home for me and is a very emotional topic. And it is a topic that I believe needs to continue to be highly talked about. According to the hotline.org, nearly 3 in 10 women and 1 in 10 men in the U.S. have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by a partner and reported it having related impact on their functioning. Just under 15% of women and 4% of men in the U.S. have been injured as a result of intimate partner violence that either included rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner. One in four women and one in seven men aged 18 and older in the U.S. have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Physical abuse is not the only type of abuse associated with domestic violence. According to the NCADV, psychological abuse is just as damaging as physical abuse. Psychological abuse includes verbal abuse, threats of acts, coercive tactics, and perpetrators use psychological abuse to control, terrorize, and degenerate their victims. Psychological abuse, according to the NCADV, includes humiliating the victim, controlling what the victim can and cannot do, withholding information from the victim, deliberately doing something to make the victim feel diminished or embarrassed, isolating the victim from friends or family, denying the victim access to money or other basic resources, demeaning the victim in public or in private, undermining the victim's confidence and her self-worth, convincing the victim that she or he is crazy. The NCADV goes on to further state that 48.4% of women and 48.8% of men have experienced at least one psychological aggressive behavior by an intimate partner. 4 in 10 women and 4 in 10 men have experienced at least one form of coercive control by an intimate partner in their lifetime. 17.9% of women have experienced a situation where an intimate partner tried to keep them from seeing family and friends. 18.7% of women have experienced threats of physical harm by an intimate partner. 95% of men who physically abuse their intimate partners also psychologically abuse them. Women who earn 65% or more of their household incomes are likely to be psychologically abused than women who learn less than 65% of their household's income. 7 out of 10 psychologically abused women display symptoms of PTSD and or depression. Because this topic does hit so close to home for me, I wanted to make sure that this week of October, I cover two cases that involved some form of domestic violence to continue bringing awareness to the topic. On this week's episode of Missing Mondays, I will be bringing you the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos.
On the morning of May 24, 2019, a 50-year-old mother of five named Jennifer Dulos goes missing in her new Canon, Connecticut home. Prior to Jennifer's disappearance, she was living the picture-perfect life that everybody dreamed of. But what was really going on behind closed doors would ultimately lead to Jennifer's disappearance. Jennifer married her husband, Fotis, in August of 2004. The two of them together had five children. They had a set of twins and then their youngest three kids. Their family really was the picture-perfect family that everybody wanted. All of their kids competed in water sports. They lived in a multi-million dollar mansion. And every time you would see the Dulos family, they were seen as the type of family that was just happy and nobody ever questioned anything. Jennifer had a huge love for writing and graduated from Brown University and would later go on to earn a master's degree in writing from NYU. Outside of being a mom and a wife, Jennifer had a huge passion for blogging and would often write a ton of blogs about motherhood. She did what she could to keep herself busy while her husband worked. Those in Jennifer's life described her as somebody who was outgoing, funny, always had people laughing, was compassionate toward other people, and was extremely intelligent with a major creative brain. As I mentioned before, the Dulos family was the kind of family that everybody dreamed of being, but on the inside, their marriage was heavily toxic and very far from perfect. There were several times that her husband, Fotis, was questioned about their marriage after she went missing, and he would always say that their marriage was like any other marriage. Him and his wife would have arguments, they would disagree on things and there was times where things were harder than usual but he loved Jennifer and never would want anything to happen to her. However, two years prior to Jennifer's disappearance, she had unexpectedly taken her five kids and left their home in Farmington, Connecticut and the next day she filed a motion with the court for emergency custody of the kids and filed for divorce. In these court documents, she stated that she was afraid of her husband and knew that filing for divorce and this emergency custody motion would enrage him. But she said she did it quickly because she was scared that her husband would eventually try to kidnap their children and take off to Greece with them. And in bitter, very toxic custody battles. This is not something that is unusual and as a single parent myself, I'm not saying that this is something that would ever happen in my situation because it wouldn't, but these are still very valid thoughts when you come from a very toxic, unsafe marriage or even relationship. Jennifer had further gone on to tell the court that she was scared of her husband because after a disagreement they had gotten into, he had purchased gun cases and she found the receipts inside their home. This argument that they had gotten into, her husband asked Jennifer to agree to let him have the house so his new girlfriend and daughter could move in, which would then leave her and her five children without a home. And she just absolutely disagreed with him. And I can understand why. Why should her and her five children be displaced so him, his girlfriend, and her daughter can move into their family home? Jennifer opens up to the court that over the last few months her husband's behavior had become extremely irrational and he would often threaten her and get aggressive. She stated that he always had the attitude that he would do whatever it took to win at all costs even if it meant becoming extremely dangerous. Her husband of course denied all of the accusations that were made against him and his lawyers fought in court during his custody battle on his behalf and said that all of this was made up in Jennifer's head. This custody battle was anything but smooth. Over the two-year very toxic 
toxic and bitter custody battle Jennifer and her husband had filed over 300 motions just between the two of them. Although her husband's lawyers fought to say that all of this was made up in Jennifer's head, their babysitter had testified in court that she had witnessed with her own eyes multiple times where Jennifer's husband, Fotis, had tried to attack her in their home. And if this was not bad enough, there was even an incident in 2017 where the babysitter stated that she had found Jennifer hunched over in the driveway crying her eyes out and Jennifer said that her husband had tried to run her over with his car. At the end of this very nasty custody battle, Jennifer was awarded full custody of the children. For a year after her husband fought to get regular visitation with the kids, but the judge overruled it and it had to be supervised visitation. This last court hearing where he was ordered to have supervised visitation took place just one week before Jennifer's disappearance. On the morning of May 24th, 2019, it was just like any other morning for Jennifer Julos. She got up early that morning to get her five kids ready for school, and they left their home around 7.58 that morning. Jennifer had several appointments in New York City that day and let the babysitter know she would not be returning home. A neighbor's camera picked up Jennifer leaving the home that morning and returning just seven minutes later after dropping off the kids. This camera footage of Jennifer would be the very last time that anyone would ever see her alive. That exact same camera caught Jennifer's car leaving her home again at 10.25 a.m. a few hours later. But what police would later find out is that Jennifer was not the one driving her car. Around 11.30 a.m. that same morning, the babysitter arrived at the Dulos home and she told investigators that she went through the garage to get into the home as usual. She told the police that one of Jennifer's cars was gone, but that was not something out of the ordinary because she knew that Jennifer had multiple doctor's appointments in New York City that day and would not be home. But she goes on to further tell police that as she entered the home is when she started to notice that things were off. She noticed that Jennifer's purse was still in the home and that there was an uneaten granola bar on the counter which is typically what Jennifer would eat for breakfast. She felt this was a little off but continued on. But just a few minutes later, she noticed that the paper towel roll in the kitchen needed to be replaced with new paper towels. She went into the pantry where the paper towels were kept and that's when she noticed something was severely off. She tells police that just the night before, she had to stock that area with 12 different paper towel rolls and that very next morning, there was only two. She asked herself, what in the world could they have been doing last night? that would make them have to use 10 different paper towel rolls. And where were all the used paper towels because they were not in the trash? The babysitter texted Jennifer around 12.43 p.m. on the 24th, but she gets no response. And she just talked it up to the fact that she was at her doctor's appointments. But she's still getting this uneasy feeling in her gut. Not too much later, she texts her again at 1.10 to let her know that she had picked up the kids from school and said that they would be on their way sometime around 2.30 p.m. When this time comes, she still does not hear anything from Jennifer. So at 4 o'clock, she decides to finally give her a phone call and the phone goes straight to voicemail. The babysitter's heart sank into her stomach when that call went to voicemail, so she calls Jennifer's friends and family and let them know that something was wrong. She had not been able to get a hold of Jennifer throughout the day and this set her family into a panic. It's now 7 p.m. and still nobody has heard from Jennifer, so her parents know that they have to make contact with the police. Quickly after 
after her family realized that Jennifer was missing and something was wrong, missing flyers were being hung up for Jennifer all around the New Cannon area. Not long after the flyers are being handed out, the state police start on foot to search for Jennifer in wooded areas by her home. The state police and FBI would make a very quick discovery. Just three miles away from Jennifer's home, they find her SUV abandoned in a wooden area. After finding her SUV so close to her home, the police go back to the Dulos home and start searching inside the home for any evidence. When the state police and the FBI arrive at the home, they start in the garage area and they find what looks to be blood spatter on the Land Rover parked inside the garage and more blood spatter had been found on the door and the wall inside the garage. It looked to be as if somebody had tried to clean it up. The blood was quickly sent off for DNA analysis and the match came back to Jennifer. The police and the FBI know that they now have a homicide on their hands and they are not messing around. Her family informs the police and FBI about her very rocky relationship with her husband and how they just went through this really nasty custody battle. And they tell police that they need to start looking into her husband because he may be the one responsible for her disappearance. The police take this very seriously after looking through all of the court documents during their custody battle. The police get a hunch to look at the ping locations for his cell phone and they are in shock when they find out that Fotis is actually on the move. The search into the pings on his cell phone is taking place just hours after Jennifer's disappearance. Police quickly get access to be able to look at the street camera footage along the route that his cell phone is pinging. As they are combing over this camera footage, they see her husband parked on the side of the road on Albany Avenue in Hartford, Connecticut, which is just over an hour and 10 minutes away from New Cannon. The camera footage shows her husband getting out of his truck and throwing a black trash bag into the garbage garbage can on the side of the road. And what they see next is a woman get out of the passenger side of the truck. That woman would later be identified as his new girlfriend, Michelle Traconis. The camera footage goes on to show her husband even throwing these trash bags into storm drains. Law enforcement was luckily able to recover those trash bags and inside those bags were Jennifer's bloody clothing. Not only did they find Jennifer's bloody clothing, but they also found license plates that were registered to her Chevy Suburban. Inside those trash bags, they also found zip ties, a kitchen sponge, kitchen towel, and a mop sponge. When all of these items were ran through the DNA analysis, all of the DNA came back as a match to Jennifer. Not any longer than a week after that DNA came back as a match to Jennifer, the police arrested her husband, Fotis, and his girlfriend, Michelle, for tampering with evidence. The police were so determined to be able to charge him for her murder, even without her body, so they went as far as going to the landfill where all of the trash was taken to in Hartford daily and going with shovels and just digging through the garbage. It was reported that they dug through 35 tons of garbage every single day and would be out there for more than 15 to 17 hours at a time. Just prior to Fotis's arrest, the news was able to convince him to sit down for an interview. And as I watched this interview with her husband, it sent chills down my spine because he sat there with absolutely no emotion in his body 
whatsoever. This was the woman who gave birth to his five babies, somebody that he at one point loved so much. And all of this evidence is leading to him that he did something to her. And he just sat there so nonchalant with zero motion in his body, just a blank stare, and just so numb to the fact that there's a large possibility that she is dead and he's likely going down for it. How can someone come off so evil? While both her husband and his girlfriend, Michelle, were in custody, they searched their new home in Farmington, and what they would find was handwritten notes. The police referred to them as the alibi script. It was handwritten by her husband and Michelle, and it was notes about what they had done the day that Jennifer went missing and the day after she went missing. The police said that when they first questioned Michelle, her story was almost word for word from what they found on those handwritten notes. But as time went on, her story began to change and they would become extremely contradictory. She first tells police that Fotis was home the morning of Jennifer's disappearance. The two of them had sex, he took a shower, and she made breakfast for her daughter. Then she turns around to eventually admit that Fotis was not home the morning of the 24th at all. As the questioning continues, she tells police that her and Fotis had met for lunch on the day of the 24th, and after lunch, the two of them went to a house that was owned by the housing company that he worked for, and she tells tells police that the two of them were cleaning it for a showing for a client the following day. Police just come out and tell her that Fotis killed Jennifer in that home and that she was left to clean up the mess. After this statement was made, Michelle just flat out says, I was cleaning the home. I was not cleaning Jennifer. And this is where the case gets broken wide open. I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about a red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck that I haven't mentioned just yet. A red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck was seen near Jennifer's home the morning of her disappearance, and it is later seen being driven by Michelle at a car wash back in Farmington. The police do not let Michelle know that they had already figured out that this red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck was owned by the company that Fotis worked for. They believe that Fotis drove this red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck to New Cannon from Farmington, so no one would get suspicious seeing his car in the area of Jennifer's home. When Michelle was questioned about why she was driving the same truck to the car wash, she flat out just says it's because Jennifer's body was in there at some point. After this bombshell of a confession, Michelle then gets charged with conspiracy to commit murder, tampering with evidence, and accessory after the fact. Jennifer's family is just in total shock finding out that Michelle had something to do with this, as well as Fotis. But the shock doesn't stop there. The local news would break that Fotis's former friend and former lawyer, Kent Mahinney, was charged and arrested for conspiracy to commit murder, as it was found out that he was linked to the handwritten alibi notes found in Fotis and Michelle's home. Jennifer's poor family and friends just keep getting thrown through all of these crazy loops, but they see that there has been three arrests made and they are hoping that there is enough evidence to keep all three of them permanently behind bars. And they hope that one of them would eventually confess to where Jennifer's body was. And as if her family already is not having a hard enough time not knowing where Jennifer's body was or what happened to her exactly, they get the information in January of 2020 
that Fotis was released from behind bars on house arrest pending his trial. Just weeks after Fotis was let out on house arrest, it was breaking news that he was found dead inside his home of suicide. This left Jennifer's family feeling completely heartbroken because their daughter has still never been recovered and is still considered a missing person. Jennifer's five children have lost so much and her family would like to be able to someday get some type of closure. Fotis's girlfriend Michelle Traconis and his lawyer Kent Mahaney are still currently behind bars awaiting trial for their part in the disappearance and death of Jennifer Dulos. Her family has very much come to terms with the fact that something really bad has happened to their loved one, but her body has never been recovered. Although she has been declared legally dead, her body is still missing. Her children and her family deserve to have her returned home so they can mourn properly. If you have any information about the whereabouts of Jennifer Jennifer Dulos, you are highly encouraged to call the new Cannon, Connecticut Police Department. I recognize that this is not our typical Missing Mondays episode. Usually when we cover somebody for our Missing Mondays segment, they are not already declared legally dead and there's not somebody who has been charged with their murder. But Jennifer's body is still very much missing and her family deserves to have her home. I wanted to focus on this case today because it does heavily involve domestic violence, both physical and psychological abuse. I want to use the Crimeholics platform as a place to educate the public about these kinds of topics, the things to look out for, the things to be wary of, because going on from day to day, we don't always pay close attention to our loved ones and their actions and the words that they use and their body language. We don't always slow down and pay attention to those kinds of things. All we really see is what's on the outside and what people are allowing us to see. And that is exactly what was going on in Jennifer's life. Everybody from the outside only saw this picture-perfect, happy family. In May of 2021, I was diagnosed with PTSD from years of extensive psychological abuse that started in my childhood and unfortunately extended into my adulthood in my marriage. There was so many things that were happening that I was hiding from everybody around me and I only allowed people to see what I wanted them to see, which was this picture-perfect family, just as Jennifer Dulos did and as so many others do as well. But I was showing so many signs that I was going through something bad behind closed doors, but I did whatever I could to try to cover that up. But there was still so many people in my life that were educated about this topic that knew something was up and they would question me, but I would lie and just say, no, I'm fine. Everything is okay. I wish now looking back that I would have trusted those people in my life to be able to open up and tell them what was happening at the time. That is why it is so important for me to use our platform to educate people about this topic, both physical abuse and psychological, because there is people experiencing this daily, both men and women who do not have people in their life who are educated on this topic and may be overlooking the signs of both physical and psychological abuse that their loved ones are facing. Please, if you or somebody you know 
is facing any form of domestic violence, whether it be physical or psychological, and you have nowhere to turn to or don't know where to look for help, please call 1-800-799-7233. Or know that my inbox is always open for anybody who needs a listening ear or needs help. I have faced this. I have been through it. I'm still going through it. I'm still very much healing from this topic that I'm talking about today, but my inbox is always open for anybody. You can reach me at Mackenzie Durbin on Facebook, or you can message me on Instagram at this is Kenzie, K-E-N-Z-I underscore, or you can reach me at crimeaholics.podcast on Instagram. Please reach out if you need help. Crimeaholics, as always, be aware and take care.